want to read some verses from Psalm 92. Marla texted me a prayer request. Um, we want to be in prayer for uh, Victoria's mother-in-law, who suffered a heart attack and is uh, having a procedure today to try to remove some blood clots. So uh, please be in prayer uh, for Victoria's mother-in-law. And, uh, you know, we come here today, we, we are here to just reflect on who God is and what he's done for us. But these verses from Psalm 92 are just a wonderful uh, reminder of what we're doing. It says, It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work, at the works of your hands, I sing for joy. And, you know, we don't, we don't have a harp or, or a lute here today, uh, but, but we come and we just reflect on who God is. And we lift our voices, and uh, we do that imperfectly at times, but uh, we're just uh, we're trying to sing the praises of God and declare his steadfast love. Let's just take a moment and pray before we sing this next song. Father, we just want to come before you we confess that we are needy people um, lord we confess that we have struggles we have sins we have uh, trials in this life um, we want to want to pray for victoria's mother-in-law who's going through this medical emergency right now we just pray that you would come alongside her and bring a your healing power uh, that you would protect her and and give the doctors wisdom and help and uh, Lord, we also just ask for your provision for us for a new week. Um, a new week lays before us. We don't know uh, what is coming up. We just know that you will be faithful. And we pray that you would help us to walk in your steps and live by the power of your spirit. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let the King of my heart be the mountain where I run. The fountain I drink from, oh, he is my song. Let the king of my heart be the shadow where I hide. The ransom for my life, oh, he is my song. You are good, good, oh, you are good. few announcements this morning. Um, again, thank you for, for joining us today. It doesn't feel like spring, but we know spring is coming. And one of the things we always look forward to in the spring is Easter. And we have an opportunity to be involved in a ministry that's coming up. We'll have our Easter egg hunt. It's going to be the Saturday before Easter, the day before Easter. So there's opportunities to come here and help spread eggs all over uh, this grassy area all the way around the church. We'll need people to show up that morning and just be uh, willing to spread some eggs around. We need uh, some friendly faces who can welcome people at the door. Uh, we may have need for people to 
help serve some coffee or donuts. So there's lots of opportunities. And if for some reason, you know, there's not something you can be involved with that day, uh, the week before Easter, we have a, a chance to help fill eggs. So there's a lot of candy to put into eggs. And finally, we need some candy. So all these are things that we can do. Some specific things on candy to know. I think no peanuts and, uh, you know, look for things that you can fit into, into plastic Easter eggs. So all those things, you can find more uh, information in your bulletin, the specifics around the times. Uh, is there a sign-up sheet here again this week, Mike? Yes. Okay, very good. So look for the sign-up sheet. So Steve is, uh, is out of uh, the country, coming back soon. So today we have a great privilege to hear from Jesse. Uh, Jesse, for those that haven't had a chance to meet him, has uh, recently come to Creekside to serve as our, our youth pastor. And so we're excited to, to welcome him, and we'll be continuing our First Samuel series. So come on up, Jesse. Thanks, Alan, and thank you to our worship team for leading us in worship. Good morning, everyone. Glad to see you all here, despite the weather and the fact that it's spring break. Thanks for coming and worshiping with us. Um, this morning, we're going to be studying and reading in uh, 1 Samuel 4, so you can go ahead and open there in your Bibles. But before we engage in our text, I want to briefly consider and review a little bit what we've studied over the last few weeks in our series in 1 Samuel, and hopefully spark your memory a little bit. It's not going to be a long review, just a quick look back. So we're looking back, remember the plight and the faith of Hannah, who trusted in God, and then also remember God's faithfulness and grace to her. Then after that, we saw God's proclamation of coming judgment on the sins of Eli's family. And finally, last week, Kyle shared the contrast between Samuel's humble obedience and Eli's failing leadership. Now today, as we continue the series, we're going to begin a segment of the story where Samuel starts to, he falls out of the picture for a little while. So far, it seems a little bit like Samuel's been at the center of the story, but he falls out of the picture for a few chapters. And I think this is a good reminder for us that the book of Samuel is not about these characters we see in the story. It's not about Samuel. It's not about David. It's not about any other characters we see in the story. It's about God. And that's what we're going to see in these next few chapters is God revealing himself to his people. But today, the, the passage we're looking at is, is a setup for this coming segment. It's the, the beginning um, of this next story. <clears throat> so I'm sure many of you are familiar with um, the idea of a cliffhanger, especially if you're into reading books or watching TV shows. A cliffhanger is when the, the teller of a story gets you on the edge of your seat wondering what's going to happen next and then just drops you. Um, you're, you're stuck there waiting to, for the rest of the story until the next episode or the next book comes out. And that's, that's kind of that's where we're going to be at today. I'm going to be leaving you guys on a bit of a cliffhanger, not intentionally on how I'm presenting the text, but because this text is a setup for what God is going to do in the following passages. So this, we're going to have a bit of a cliffhanger. This text is going to set up a problem or a dilemma in the story um, where the hero will rise up to save the day. So in the coming weeks, it will be resolved. But this is more of the teaser and is going to be setting the stage for what's coming. So again, the primary story is about God making his power and glory known, which he will do in coming chapters. But today, we're going to be considering a few small views of God that the people hold and the pitfalls that those lead to. 
So in that setup, we're going to be looking at those small views of God. So let's go ahead and start by jumping into our passage and reading God's Word. So if you'll look at 1 Samuel 4, starting in verse, the second part of verse 1. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel, and, the battle, and as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to the camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh, so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh, and they brought back the ark of the covenant of the Lord Almighty, who was enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. When the ark of the Lord's covenant came into the camp, all of Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, What is all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A god has come into the camp, they said. Oh no, nothing like this has happened before. We are doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. And the ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. That same day, a Benjamite ran from the battle line and went to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he arrived, there was Eli sitting on his chair by the side of the road, watching, because his heart feared for the ark of God. When the man entered the town and told what had happened, the whole story sent up a cry. Eli heard the outcry and asked, What is the meaning of this uproar? The man hurried over to Eli, who was 90 years old and whose eyes had failed so that he could not see. He told Eli, I have just come to the battle line, come from the battle line. I have fled from it this very day. Eli asked, What happened, my son? The man who brought the news replied, Israel fled before the Philistines, and the army was, has suffered heavy losses. Also, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken and he died, for he was an old man and he was heavy. He led Israel 40 years. His daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and near the time of delivery. When she heard the news that the ark of God had been captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she went into labor and gave birth, but was overcome by her labor pains. As she was dying, the woman attending her said, Don't despair. You have given birth to a son. But she did not respond or pay any attention. She named the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because of the capture of the ark of God and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband. She said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for revealing yourself to us. Uh, we just pray that you'll send your spirit to guide and direct us as we study your word and consider what you have for us. Help us to understand it and help us to apply it to our lives. Um, we just thank you. We love you and trust you, Jesus. Amen. So as I mentioned before, 
This story we're looking at today is part of a larger segment of the story that is ultimately about God's revelation, the revelation of himself and what he's doing amongst his people. So as we dive into our text and to look at it, keep that in mind that that's kind of the big picture. We're going to be zooming in a little bit, but that's the big picture. And as I said, we're going to be looking at a few small perspectives that some of the people had of God and those pitfalls. But before we jump into that, give me a minute to just briefly talk about a few items of context, some historical context and literary context. So very important in our message, our, our text today, is the Ark of the Covenant. So I thought briefly we should at least address what the Ark of the Covenant is. We see in Hebrews 9.4, it says about the Ark that it's covered in gold. It contained a gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and some of the stone tablets of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So it should not be confused. The Ark of the Covenant should not be confused with a large boat. It's not what Noah was floating on um, in the flood. The Ark of the Covenant is a box about four feet by two feet. That's not exact, by the way, because they do it in cubits. But <laughs> um, it's a small box, and it contained reminders of what God had done for the people. And it was meant to serve as a reminder of God's presence um, among his people. And we see that in Exodus 25, if you want to study that further. Um, we see that the ark was kept in the Holy of Holies, and it was meant to be a place where God resided among his people. And it was also where he spoke to them from. So for our study today, it's significant for us to know that the Ark of the Covenant represented God's presence amongst his people. So secondly, second item is, who were the Philistines? If you look at Israel throughout history, and if, if you listen to sermons at all, you probably heard the Israelites have lots of enemies. In this era, the Philistines were the primary enemy of the Israelites. They were people who had migrated from across the sea. We know that they were technologically advanced. They were polytheistic, meaning they, they believed in multiple gods and worshipped many gods. Um, their primary god was Dagon. And we also know that they have previously oppressed and ruled over the Israelites, as we can see in Judges 10 and Judges 13. So now I've touched on a few historical details. I briefly want to mention the, the prophecy of God against the house of Eli that has been fulfilled in our text. Um, we saw that played out in chapter 2. Steve first shared it there about the prophecy and God's foretelling of the coming judgment. And also a reminder when God spoke to Samuel, we saw it again that um, God was going to bring judgment on the house of Eli because of the sin of his family. So if you've been here in the last couple weeks, you have an idea of what I'm talking about here. We've discussed it a little bit already, but I want to note a few things that will help us today as we study our passage. So first, God foretold his judgment on the house of Eli. He said that they would no longer serve as priests before him and that his two sons would die on the same day. In our text today, we saw that fulfilled, and we also saw Eli die in addition. God's foreknowledge not only glorifies him by showing his power, but it also shows us that he's in control of the situation. I think if it wasn't for this prophecy, some might be tempted to try to understand this passage as God's defeat before the Philistines. But we know that that's not the case. We see God's in control. He foretold and predicted and warned that he was going to bring judgment. So at the, at the very minimum, God knew this was going to happen. More likely, God is in control of what's happening, and he's bringing judgment through the Philistines. But the narrator doesn't specifically tell us one way or the other. So we have to realize that from the context. He doesn't explicitly lay out what was going on in this defeat. But the fact that God foretold this day makes it clear to me that God is in control. Likewise, in the following chapters, after this text, 
we see that God is in control. He has no army to fight for him there, and yet he can still defeat his enemies. And we know from a broader picture of Scripture that God is all-powerful and all-knowing. But even in this text, we can see that God is in control and that he, he has a handle on the situation and he's not worried about the outcome of this battle. So when we understand this text within our wide lens of Scripture as a whole, we can see that God is working in a people who are sinful and poorly led. God is showing and revealing his power and holiness to a people who have forgotten. But as we zoom in on chapter 4 specifically, which I already talked about is the setup for God's coming revelation of his holiness and power, we see a few examples of small beliefs of how people are viewing God revealed by their actions. And that's what we're going to dive into today. So the three perspectives we're going to look at is first, the leaders of the Israelites. And we're going to consider their disregard for God's holiness and their practice of false religion. Likewise, we're going to look at the Philistines and their small perspective of Yahweh, despite their fear and awe of him. And lastly, we'll consider Phineas's wife, the daughter-in-law of Eli, and her hopelessness and what that hopelessness reveals about her um, belief of God. So first, we'll look at the Israelite leaders. And I'm going to go ahead and reread the short section about that, starting in verse 3. But remember, as we're diving into this, they already lost one battle where we're jumping in. Verse 3. When the soldiers returned to the camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat on us this day before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh, so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh, and they brought back the ark of the covenant of the Lord Almighty, who was enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. So initially, it stands out to me that the Israelite leaders do well, to note that after they lost the first battle, they note that God's hand was against them, and they ask why. Now, interestingly, instead of seeking the answer to that question, they seem to just seek their own solution. Their solution is to get the ark and bring it into the battle in hopes that that will change something. And clearly something went wrong in their plan, as we already read, because they lose the second battle as well, and God is not with them, and we know already that God is in control of the situation. So it's not that God was with them and lost— but God was not with them in this battle, despite the fact that they brought the ark. And once again, we need to note that the narrator doesn't tell us exactly what the people did wrong. He doesn't explicitly lay out what they did wrong. We're left to understand why God was not with them based on the context of the story. So first, I want to mark off one idea that was not the reason that our minds often jump to. I know it was the first thing my mind jumped to. I don't believe that God allowed their defeat because it was wrong for them to bring the Ark of the Covenant into battle. In fact, likely, they thought of the idea because it had been done before. If you remember the story in Joshua where they brought the Ark into battle at Jericho. Now, in that situation, God had told them to bring the Ark into battle, which is one significant difference. And also, Joshua had humbly received those commands from the Lord. But we also see later in 1 Samuel a time when Saul brings the Ark of the Covenant into battle, and God blesses the battle, and they win. So it doesn't seem to me that the reason that God allows them to lose and to fail has to do with the fact that they brought the Ark. So what did they do wrong? Why was God not with them, and why did he allow them to suffer this great defeat? To start, I think we need to look at who escorted the Ark into battle. Uh, Hophni and Phinehas, the two priests who we've already discussed, and we know 
have already had God's judgment pronounced on them because of their sin. These leaders were in open sin before the people in their practice of serving before the Lord. So not only were they sinning, but they were openly sinning in front of all the people. And in doing so, they were teaching this idea that sin's not that big of a deal and that God's not that holy. And so God's already against them because they're not only sinning against him, but they're leading his people into a mindset of that he's a small God. He's not holy. He's not going to bring justice down. So God's already against them, as we've seen previously. And I believe that the context reveals to us that this is the reason that God allowed them to lose the first battle in the first place. And that's the answer to the, leader's que- the elder's question when they say, why is God against us? So it's a seemingly unanswered question, but if you look in the context, I believe that answers it for us. And this is consistent with other examples in Scripture where God allows his people to lose battles. It's because of their sin against him, because God is faithful, but he is serious about sin as well, and he brings judgment for sin. So secondly, we see that the way the leaders went about trying to get God's help was more than a bit lacking and also shows a small perspective of God. I think that this second failure is best shown by considering the contrast between Samuel's leadership in chapter 7 and when he petitions for help, which I'm not going to go to right now for the sake of time. You can either look it up later and read it or wait until we get there. In a few weeks, we'll be there, or a few months probably. But in that example, Samuel leads the people um, to repent of their sin, and the Philistines come against them again. And this, this next time, 20 years later, when the Philistines come against them, the people ask Samuel to cry out to God for help. And he offers sacrifices, and they cry out to God for help, and God leads them to victory. So I think the significant difference here, especially when seen in contrast of the leaders here in chapter 4 and Samuel leading in chapter 7, is there's a clear repentance of sin and humility before God in chapter 7. But here in chapter 4, it reveals much of I think where they were at when they they show no humility and no repentance of sin. Rather, they try to manipulate God and seek his protective presence outside of submission and obedience to him. So here's where we get into some a little bit of rough waters and trying to understand what's going on. So try to bear with me and follow along here. It's not perfectly clear how the Israelites thought bringing the ark into the battle would help them win. It's not clear exactly what they thought was going to happen. As I read in verse 3 in the NIV, it says, Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh, so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. Now, I'm sure some of you are not reading out of the NIV and have already noted that it doesn't say that he will go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies, but that it will go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So, which is it? Is, are they hoping in God to save them from the hand of their enemies, or are they looking to the ark um, in some way? Now, I'll, I'll start by saying I'm no expert in language, Hebrew or any other, really. So I'm not going to try to give you guys a long lesson on this, but I will say as I looked into it, the best I can understand is that this is an interpretation, I mean, this is a translation of a word, a pronoun that can be translated either way, he or it, and you have to figure out by the context which one it's supposed to be. And based on the different transla- English translations I looked at, it seems that a lot of people disagree on which one it should be. So I see kind of two veins of thought. First, it's possible 
that the Israelites misunderstood the ark as some sort of magical talisman that they thought could somehow bring them power they could access, and they were trusting in it as some sort of magical talisman that had God's power. If this is the case, then I would say that their view of God is indeed very small, and that they have stooped to the level of understanding Yahweh and the way that the neighboring nations understand their little g-gods. It's possibly an explanation of what they were thinking. And if so, they were surely practicing a sort of mystical false religion here. Or alternatively, and what seems I think more likely to me, can't say I know for sure, is that the Israelites were trying to force God's hand. They were trying to use the ark that they knew represented God's presence and power to convince God to fight for them without repenting of their sin and without humbling themselves before him. Likely they were thinking something along the lines of, surely if we bring the ark into battle, God won't let us lose because then he will suffer a defeat as well and his ark will have lost. Now I believe the second understanding is supported in Jeremiah 7, which once again, don't have the time to go to. So if you want to go ahead and take a look there yourselves, but I'll quickly summarize it and the connection I see. In Jeremiah 7, God is warning the people of coming judgment for their sin. And they stand on a false idea that because they have the temple of God, because they're in God's house, they won't suffer. They won't be overcome. And God says, God reminds them in verse 12, to remember what he did at Shiloh, where he used to make his name dwell and consider what he did because of the wickedness of his people. Now, it's hard to know exactly what he's talking about there, but I think it's a direct reference to our passage here. After this time, there's no other evidence that the the ark was ever again at Shiloh, where the priest served there. So it seems that God is referring to this passage that we're studying today. And even if it's not a direct reference, it is definitely a mirror image of what's going on in Jeremiah as what's going on here. The people are, are under God's judgment for sin, and they seem to think that because they have the ark of the covenant and God's presence there, that he won't bring his judgment down on them. They seem to think that somehow it will protect them and that God can't, surely can't let them lose because then he'll lose as well. And I think this shows their small view of God. This shows that they don't think that God can act on his own to defend his glory, which we'll see in the coming weeks how he does so. Even without the Israelite army, he's able to act on his own to defend his glory and his holiness. But so they're trusting in their manip- manipulative plan instead of repenting and turning humbly to God for help. And I believe if they would have done so, God would have, the evidence we see in Scripture over and over is when people humbly repent and turn from their sin, God will save them. But there's no evidence of humility and reliance on God and how they went about trying to get God's help. Rather, their actions reveal a small perspective of God that is revealing that he's not as holy as he says he is, and that they think that the, the sin of their leaders isn't that big of an issue. So they're putting God in a box in their thinking. Now, if, if it was the first interpretation where they're relying on the ark, it, then they're surely putting God in a box, and they're understanding God's power to be residing in this box, or they're metaphorically putting God in a box because they're seeing God as a small God, and they're seeing him as a God that can be manipulated by their human meddling. They think that their religious artifact can do what their unrepentant and irreverent hearts could not. So I hope 
I haven't lost you on all that. I thought it was important to go through the interpretation of that passage because it is it's a little hard to understand, and I can't say clearly exactly what's going on. So I'll give you a little bit of both perspectives there. But hopefully I can bring it in a little bit as I talk about how that applies to us today. So remember the ark, bringing the ark into battle wasn't the issue. The issue was that they were trying to manipulate God and that they had unrepentant hearts and were not humbly submitting to God and humbly petitioning him like Samuel did. So similarly, I think we can have a small view of God and practice a sort of false religion like they did when we petition God for help. Sometimes when we pray and ask God for help, we do so without really humbling ourselves before him. And we try to ask for things, and we try to ask for them by saying, we ask for this in Jesus' name. And we simply add those words at the end of a request and never consider if that request is within God's will and for his glory. We don't consider if that's truly in Jesus' name. Oftentimes we come to God pleading for help, and we don't confess our sin, and we don't lean into the cross and the forgiveness that we have in Jesus. Now, this is a really fine line, and I can't draw it for you. This is something you have to kind of wrestle through yourself. I'm surely not telling you to not pray in Jesus' name. I am not telling you to avoid asking for what you need. Those are both things Jesus clearly teaches us to do. But what I'm trying to say is that when we do pray, let's not make the mistake of the Israelites and be coming to twist God's arm to help us. Let's come humbly before him, confess our sin, and humbly submit to his will. When we pray in Jesus' name, we're not claiming what is rightfully ours, but we're trusting in his grace. And so I think our posture should reflect that, a posture of humility before God. So I want to brief, briefly read Psalm 51, written by David, that, that I think expresses this. It says, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. Now remember, sacrifices were something God commanded. But David realized that going through the motions of just offering those sacrifices without a humble and contrite heart was not what God was desiring. So I think that's the error that we see in the Israelite leaders. They example for us a small view and belief of God And that led them into a a mystical, false religion, attempting to use God's power apart from obedience and submission to him. And we saw the devastation that accompanied that. So let's move on to the Philistines. Let's look at the Philistines' view of God. This is in, starting in verse 5. When the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into the camp, all of Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, What is all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A god has come into the camp, they said. Oh no, nothing like this has happened before. We are doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. So when I consider the Philistines' view of God, I'm initially surprised at their awe and their fear of God. And it kind of seems like, oh, in some sense, they almost are doing better than the Israelites here. They're just like man, this God is powerful. What are we going to do? But we see in their actions that their belief and their fear and awe of God was not maybe as much as it initially seems. So to start, they're in a great place, and they recognize God's greatness. They saw God as powerful, but instead of submitting to him and laying down their arms, they choose to resist him, seemingly because they think 
that he is no different than the little g-gods that they see in the world around them that they worship. They think that he can be defeated. Yes, they saw that he was great in power, but they still thought there's a chance he could be defeated. I want to read an explanation from a commentary called Exalting Jesus in First and Second Samuel that kind of helps us understand the mindset of the Philistines a little bit and the perspectives of the day amongst Israelites' neighbors. It says, Each nation worshipped a principal deity as the high god over all other gods. But then a patron deity protected individual cities. They believed that all deities, however, deserved honor. So the peoples would create temples and shrines in which the idols were housed. So when an enemy nation was defeated, it meant their god defeated a rival. To avoid offending the rival deity, now defeated, the nation victorious in battle would bring the idol or relic or talisman to the defeated nation into their temple or shrine. In short, they would add the defeated city to their pantheon of gods. For this reason, we can understand why the Philistines captured what they thought was Israel's deity, the Ark, and brought it into their temple of Dagon. They believed that their little g-god Dagon defeated Israel's deity Yahweh. They simply viewed Yahweh as one of the many gods of the nations around them, but they did not understand who Yahweh truly is. The Philistines did see God's great power. They remembered the stories of what God had done in Egypt. But rather than submitting to him, they sought to pit their god, Dagon, against Yahweh. They followed the wisdom of the day and thought that there's a chance that our God could still win. So how do we bring this home to us? We don't have idols or gods in our culture that we face off in battle against each other, but we do struggle with the same thing that the Philistines struggle with, and that's understanding who God really is, who the God of the universe really is. They had a small view of Yahweh, just as another one of another nation's little g-gods. The wisdom of the day and the cultural understanding led them to think that their God could potentially defeat Yahweh. But I think if they had really understood who God was, if they had really understood that Yahweh was the powerful maker and creator of the world, the sustainer of the world, and the rightful judge of the world— at least a few of them would likely have laid down their arms and not tried to fight against him. Now remember, we still know this was their perspective. They thought God had come into the camp and against them. We know that God had not. He was not supporting the Israelites, but they did not. The Philistines didn't realize that. So likewise, in our world today, our culture tells us many different stories about God and tales about God that don't line up and reflect who he really is. Think of Matthew 16, 13, when Jesus is talking to his disciples about who he really is. The disciples share many of the popular views of the day, and they, they regurgitate these answers. And Jesus kind of presses them further and says, no, who do you say that I am? And Peter, led by the Spirit, correctly names Jesus the Messiah, the Son of the living God. In our culture today, there's lots of opinions and perspectives about who Jesus is. A lot of times we hear people saying that Jesus was a great leader. He was a prophet, a good teacher. But only a full view of who Jesus is and belief in him can bring salvation. If we believe he was just a good teacher, then we have no hope that his death could take the weight of our sin. With a small view of Jesus, we will face judgment and live in hopelessness. So we need to ask ourselves today, who do we say Jesus is? 
And I don't, I'm not thinking just like, we know the answers. We can regurgitate the right answers. But in our heart, who do we understand Jesus to be? And consider that. The Philistines showed their small view of God when they thought that fighting harder could help them. As if, if God had actually come against them, fighting with their advanced swords, because they fought with iron swords rather than bronze, would somehow help. Lucky for them, God wasn't against them in this case. But their small view of God was reflected by their actions. They were in awe of God's power, but they were still thought they could oppose him. So we need to consider how our actions reveal what we believe about Jesus. All right, lastly, as we close, let's look at the wife of Phineas, starting in verse 9. His daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant and near the time of delivery. When she heard the news that the ark of God had been captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she went into labor and gave birth, but was overcome by her labor pains. As she was dying, the woman attending her said, Don't despair. You have given birth to a son. But she did not respond or pay any attention. She named the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel. Because of the capture of the ark of God and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband, she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. So Phineas's wife, and that's all I'll refer to her because we never learn her name, was overcome by grief and um, didn't have the strength to survive childbirth. And she gave up hope at the end. She named her son Ichabod, because the glory had departed Israel. Now, what glory she's referring to is not perfectly clear. I think it's possible and even likely that she's referring to the glory of God, because we know that the glory of God and the presence of God was understood to be connected with the Ark of the Covenant. And she connects her statement by saying, the glory has departed from Israel, for the Ark of God has been captured. While she is right to be concerned with this loss, as we saw Eli was, what killed Eli was not the death of his sons, but the loss of the ark, it seems that she thinks that God has been defeated and carried away. She doesn't realize that God's in control of the situation, and because she has a small understanding of God's power and presence, she's left hopeless. With the ark gone, she's concerned with the presence of God being gone as well. And that's a good thing to be, for her to be concerned about, God's presence departing them, but it seems that she's mistaken as to why God's presence departed from them. She seems, again, to think that it's because the ark has been captured and potentially God has been carried away. She is correct to assume that God's presence is not currently with his people, but it's not because of the capture of the ark. It was because of the unrepentant sin amongst their leadership. The Israelites had driven a wedge between themselves and God with their sin. God wasn't defeated in battle. He was fully in control and judging his people. His protective presence had left his people, not because he was carried away in the ark as spoils of war, but because of the unrepentant sin of the leaders. Now, sin does the same thing for us today. It separates us from the presence of God. But for us, we know that Jesus has made a way through his death on the cross and his perfect sacrifice for us to experience God's presence and for God's presence to be always with us. We've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit to be with us if we would but believe and trust in Jesus. We need not fear God's presence departing us as the Israelites did when we trust in the atoning work of Jesus. Jesus made the way for us to abide in the presence of God that the Israelites could not. We see in 1 Corinthians that our bodies are a temple for the Holy Spirit. 
We have the presence of God dwelling in us when we trust in Jesus. Our God is not a small God, so don't make this mistake of these examples of, and try to put him in a box and limit him. Seek to have a biblical view of God who is in complete control and has the power to save. He will not be manipulated or strong-armed by us, but be submitted to. So today as we close, let's take some time to remember the gift we've been given in Jesus. Jesus paid it all. He paid the full price of our sin so that we could be a part of God's kingdom, a part of his family, and in his very presence. If we trust in Jesus to make us right before God, we will always be able to enjoy his presence, the presence of God. So let's worship our good God in remembrance of the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. As the worship team comes up, we're going to move into our time of remembrance and partake of the Lord's table together. Feel welcome to participate with us if you trust in Jesus as your Savior. And you can come to the front or to the back to partake. And let's pray as we close. Father, we thank you for, for your love for us. Thank you for what you did, um, the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf, that we won't have to be separated from you. We don't have to be far from you, but we can be near to you in Jesus. Lord, I pray that we will humbly trust and submit to you regularly and come before you, not in pride or in what we think we deserve, but understanding the, the grace and the free gift you have shown us in Christ. We love you and trust you. Amen. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my soul. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of that they had uh, defeated God when they captured the ark. Satan thought he had defeated Christ uh, when he lay in the tomb, but we know uh, that God was in control and he would have the victory. Um, we're going to give thanks for the offering, which if you would like to contribute to, you can uh, look for that uh, offering box on your way out on the welcome table. Uh, let's give thanks. Father, we thank you for um, the victory that you have. And Lord, sometimes it doesn't always look like a victory to us. Um, the Israelites, to their eyes, it looked like defeat that day, but you were working. Um, you were working to humble them. You were working to turn their hearts back to you, to recognize um, that you are a God who is much bigger and greater and mightier um, than their small view. God, we just pray that you would help us as we turn our eyes again to you um, that we would just uh, live in your power and strength this week. Help us to walk with hearts of humility. Um, recognize that you are in control. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. I know who goes before me. I know who stands behind. The God of
Thank you for coming this week. Look forward to seeing you back next week. And don't forget, uh, I believe this Wednesday night, there's no Awana or youth group uh, due to spring break.